Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. But it's great to be with you guys this morning. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Benji, um, and uh, my wife and I have the privilege of getting to be one of the, the shepherds and pastors of this community. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to dive straight in. We're in Ephesians chapter 5 today. Can you believe it? We're almost done with Ephesians. We've got like, I think, three more weeks. And this, this one's an interesting one, to be honest, as a pastor, because this sermon is on marriage. And as a church, um, I think when we took a survey about a year and a half ago, a half the church said they were not married. So I'm like writing a sermon. I'm just thinking like, oh, this is interesting. Uh, But I strongly believe regardless of where you're at, whether you're single and loving it, whether you want to be married, whether you've been, maybe you've been widowed or divorced or whether you're currently married happily or struggling, there's something today for us um, because it's the word of God. And largely because the, the, the picture of marriage, a healthy biblical picture of marriage, points us towards something even beyond an earthly relationship. It points us towards how Jesus reveals his heart towards us as a groom. He calls us his bride. And so regardless of where you're at, I just want to encourage you just to, to lean in and to listen up uh, to what God has to say. So Ephesians chapter 5 Verse 21, Um, and just as you're turning there, just to catch you up, this section actually opens up with Ephesians 5, verse 1. And it's this beautiful verse that Paul instructs the church. He says, follow God's example as dearly loved children. He says this phrase, walk in the way of love. And that phrase, like Brian talked about last week, encompasses the next few chapters. Um, everything after this moment can be underneath that umbrella term, walk in the way of love. And he's addressing a church and a culture that has some pretty radical views um, on what, what are called household codes. Um, this, that phrase, household codes, was presented by Aristotle, who I'm sure you're all familiar with that name, about 400 years prior. And he talks about that in, within the household, there's these three different spheres. There's husbands and wives, there's uh, children and parents, and there's masters and slaves, which encompass kind of the three kind of uh, places within the ancient world. And he gives instruction on them. What we're about to read is Paul's critique on Aristotle. He's presenting a different way to think about marriage, parenting, work. And he's going to be challenging the ancient audience and, to be honest, challenging uh, our contemporary uh, listeners as well. So if you guys can stand to your feet, we're going to read Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. I would encourage you, uh, let the words shock you. Uh, upset you, confuse you a little bit, uh, because we're going to get into why the, why this is. But um, I think it's important for us just to let this hit us as it would. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present to her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a quote from Genesis 2. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So like I said, uh, as much as there's probably some words in there, you're just like, oh, I don't know if I like that one. Um, That's fine. We're going to get to that in a second. But I just want to let you know, the original audience would have been just as um, confused and maybe even offended. And let me explain why. The audience this would have been read to would have adopted one of two very strong cultural worldviews when it comes to marriage. The first is the Greco-Roman worldview given by Aristotle. And the second would have been the worldview presented by the cult of Artemis. If you remember, Artemis is the goddess over Ephesus, the deity that was worshipped by the people. And that, and we're going to talk about how these two different worldviews formed his audience and their understanding of marriage. But first I want to read you an excerpt from Aristotle's book called Politics when he's talking about these household codes. He says, of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being a royal, over his wife a constitutional rule. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female. Let's just stop right there. Just say yuck. You know, it's just... We know better. Um, But it wasn't just kind of the Greco-Roman understanding of this. This was also the Judeo-Christian understanding at the time. Philo, who's a Jewish historian writing around that time, says this. Wives must be in servitude to their husbands. A servitude not imposed by violent ill treatment, but promoting obedience in all things. Parents must have power over their children. The same holds for any other person of whom the man has authority. So culturally, we have the word patriarchy would have defined this. And, but it's, it, this is a, an extreme version of patriarchy. And, but although that would have made up most of the ancient world, Ephesus was unique because of the influence Artemis had. Let me just give you a little bit of a depiction of what the Artemis worshipers would have thought about um, roles within husbands and wives and males and females. A little bit about the cult of Artemis. They believed Artemis to be the mother goddess and the source of life, the one who nourished all creatures and the power of fertility in nature. Young women turned to her as the protector of their virginity. Barren women sought her aid, and the women in labor turned to her for help in childbearing. 
It was believed that Artemis was the child of Zeus and Leto and the sister of Apollo. She sought the company of a human male partner instead of her own kind, instead of a god, thus making Artemis and the rest of her female adherents superior to men. Because of the belief of female superiority, the Artemis cults also taught that all evil was brought forth by men. This is Paul's audience. There is a cultural war of hierarchy. Who has authority? Who is superior in the home? And probably sitting within that, although these are followers of Jesus, cannot be held um, influenced by these two streams of thought. Who has hierarchy? Who has dominion? Who is in command? The, the people formed by the cult of Artemis would have said, clearly it's females. Men mess everything up. And our culture would probably agree with that, right? Our American culture has moved largely from patriarchy 50 to 100 years ago and swung into feminism, even some radical feminism. And so we're kind of on this pendulum swing. But within this audience, they carried both. And they didn't know what to do. And Paul brilliantly here, instead of saying, you're right, you're wrong, he says, you both have it messed up. I'm presenting something entirely different that I open this whole section saying it is called the way of love. Now, some of your Bibles break it up into sections or paragraphs. And depending on the translators, some of you break up this section, some of the translations break up this section in verse 21, and some of you break it up in verse 22. The Greek is very clear. This section begins at verse 21. And it says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Everyone shocked. This sentence would have been the most disruptive sentence of the whole thing. Where Paul presents what's called mutual submission. The next line, which some translations begin the paragraph saying, wives, submit yourself to your husband. Is not where the paragraph begins because if you read it, the Greek word for submit is absent. It says, it should read like this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives unto your husbands. And, and so on. And so submission is not a command unique to the wife. It's a command unique to the Christian. He's saying because of what Jesus has done, you enter into marriage different than the world does. We don't vie for hierarchy and dominance. Rather... We enter into it with mutual submission. Now, that word, again, is a really interesting one to parse out because the minute we hear it, um, and I don't know about you, we, our skin starts to crawl. Like, oh, it just sounds like servitude. It sounds like, it doesn't sound very like 2023 at all. And that word, hupotasso, is, is, it literally means to come under. But it creates kind of an interesting word picture. If you're both trying to come under, under one another, and you're both trying to prefer one another, then who's on top, if, or is anyone ever? But if you're both mutually trying to come into this place of going into that, it's really unique. And then a lot of people say, well, but then it says that husbands have headship. Husbands are the head as Christ. So doesn't that mean that Paul is saying that husbands are the ones that carry the, where the buck stops here, the final say? And that's an interesting point. The word headship is used over 400 times in the New Testament, and 99% of the time it's just referring to this. It's, it's not like a metaphor. 
And the very few times it's used as a metaphor for husbands, it doesn't leave it open for interpretation, meaning like, well, the head's the top of the body, so I guess the husband's the top of the body. It always points to Christ. If you want to see what headship looks like, it looks like Jesus. And so our definition of, of headship has to derive not from our own, like what we think headship is. You have to look at the life of Christ and say, that is what headship looks. What Paul is going to get into says, it looks like laying down your life. A true biblical definition of headship looks like the cross. It looks like taking your Roman rites and crucifying them. And this is where it starts to get really interesting. Paul, at the end of this section, points back to Genesis 2. He's quoting the original marriage. He's pointing back to Adam and Eve as the picture of what covenant is supposed to initially look like. And so here's something I'd like to present or just submit to you today. Seems to me that hierarchy does not enter into the marital makeup until after the fall. If you look at Genesis 2 and 3, the creation of Adam and Eve, sin entering into the picture, the fall, we do not see any level of dominance or hierarchy until after sin enters into the picture. Let me just take a few minutes to explain that. Where we see that is in Genesis 3.16. The verse says, your desire, this is talking to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The word desire is only used twice in all of the Torah. And the next time it's used is talking about Cain having a desire to rule over. It's a, it's a negative desire. It's not just like in a, in a kind of an amoral desire. It's kind of this sinful crouching out your door verse type of desire. And so right there in the midst of the fallout of sin, he says, guess what's going to happen to your marriage? Eve, your desire is going to be for your husband. And guess what, Adam, you're gonna, your husband's going to rule over their wives. This was not a part of the blessing in Genesis 1. This is a fallout of the curse. And some people might raise their hand like, well, there's other clues that there's hierarchy before the fall. And they would point to um, even the... Uh, the process of naming. Well, didn't Adam name Eve? And isn't that an ancient form of showing dominance? The problem with that theory is that in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, we see Hagar, a non-Jewish slave girl named Yahweh, calls him El Roy, which is a little problematic if you're trying to say that naming someone gives you dominance over them. And so that, that argument doesn't really hold up if you're looking at the ancient text. The second is the word helper. It's like, well, isn't, I mean, Eve's called a helper. She's called a helpmate. Man's the head, women are the helper. Doesn't that solve it? Well, interestingly enough, the word helper is the word azer, is used two times for women right there in Genesis 2. Every other time after that in the Old, the Old Testament, it's referred to for, it's used for Yahweh. So the term helper is rarely used for a wife and almost always used for Yahweh, normally when he's coming to a militaristic aid of Israel. He comes and helps them. Let me read some of these verses. It says in Deuteronomy 33, 
Yep, says, and he said to Judah, hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. With your hands, contend to him, and be a help, be a zer against his adversaries. Deuteronomy 33, there's none like God, there's none like Yahweh, a Jeshuron, who rides through the heavens to your help, to your azer, to the skies of his majesty. Meaning, if you want to use the term helper to ascribe women's roles as subordinate to the headship of men, then you'd have to do the same thing with Yahweh. So there seems to be that there is, there's no evidence of hierarchy within a marriage role until after sin enters into the picture. Now, there are some people who would say like, who would, who would take this so far and say, well, there's, there's not really any distinction between gender roles within the home. Personally, I have a really hard time with that view. I think that there really are clear distinctive roles pre-fall, pre-sin, largely with how God deals with Adam. Notice, God gives Adam the commandment to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before Eve's ever created. And so in Genesis 3, when the serpent comes and Eve's created, and he starts to tempt them, you don't see this in the English, but in the Hebrew, he's tempting them with, with plural verbs. Meaning he's not tempting Eve, he's tempting both of them. There's two people there. There's multiple people that he's tempting at the very same time. And Adam, which infuriates me to no end, we know is standing there with Eve, and Eve takes it, Adam says nothing. He's watching the whole thing as far as what we know, which essentially is saying this, you eat it first. If you don't die, I'll have some. Now, I want you to, it's kind of funny, but keep that picture in your mind. That's literally what he's doing. Let's see what happens to you. She doesn't, literally, she does not die. So he takes it. Now, what's really fascinating, though, is when Yahweh shows up in the garden. The serpent spoke in plural, but Yahweh spoke in singular. He addresses Adam. Where are you? What have you done, Adam? I, I, I believe, and this is where complementarian, egalitarian, these camps, for me, they're not super helpful because I, I see the Bible speaking into both these realms. It seems to me that the husband had a unique role in that situation and it was to lay down his wife. I mean, think about this. Think about what Jesus did, right? Eve's there. He's watching. Temptation comes. He says, you eat it. Let's see what happens to you. And then when God comes to address Adam, what does he do? He says, I didn't, I'm sorry, it was the woman you gave me. Cast all blame on her. And now think about this. Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam. So when Jesus shows up, our, us, his bride, he comes up. And as sin enters into the story, rather than Adam stepping aside and letting Eve, letting Eve take the fall for him, Jesus steps in between and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus does what Adam should have always done. What, is a, what does headship look like? It looks like laying down your life for the protection and for the sake of your spouse, if you're a husband. This is what Jesus did for the church. It's what Adam should have done for Eve. And it's what, if you are a follower of Jesus and you're a husband in this room, your unique role is not to use your dominance over your spouse. Your role is to lay down your life in a protective, self-sacrificial self way. And this is what Jesus is inviting us into. This is what Paul is instructing the church. Is you guys have it all wrong. 
You're arguing about who has dominance and who's in charge. He says, we're called into the way of love. Wives, I love this. He says, love your husbands, submit to your husbands as unto Christ, which again is a reversal of as unto Artemis is what they were doing. I'm going to submit to you as much as Artemis says I should submit to you, which is not much. You're the cause of all my problems. But he says, your, your mutual submission needs to flow out of your reverence for Christ, not of your reverence for Artemis. And then he looks at the husbands and he says, you're supposed to be operating like Christ towards your wife, laying down your life. This is what you have been called to do. This is how this leads to human flourishing. And my friends, when, when that starts to take place within a marriage, it becomes this beautiful ebb and flow of love and preference that quite honestly looks more like the Trinity than anything else. What is the Trinity? Isn't it a relationship? It's God, the triune God, unique in their roles, yet fully preferring the other one. This is, what I believe, what marriage was always intended to be. It was to be a reflection of the Trinitarian God that we serve. And what is turned into is a debate between Aristotle and Artemis. Who's in control? It looks like Genesis 3, dominance and power. And Paul says, you've been called into the way of love, to mutual submission and to do this. So what does that look like? What, what happens if a husband and a wife engage this type of, of framework, this type of theology? What kind of methodology does it produce? And again, we don't have a ton of times uh, for this, but I want to just give you five practices of how this can actually look like in your marriage. Number one is listen graciously. Listening graciously means not only that you're attentive to the words that are saying, but you've created a safe enough environment for your spouse to speak. You show genuine interest enough. Because here's the thing. If you're like, hey, how are you feeling? And every time they say how they're feeling, you're quick to be defensive or you dominate them with your words or your silent treatment, they're not going to feel safe enough to even want to share what's going on. Listen. Create a culture and a space of listening graciously. Secondly, learn continually. We have more tools at our fingertips than ever before than to learn the hardwiring we have. I mean, do, Jen and I every year try and find a new tool to give us verbiage for how we learn one another. Everything from the Enneagram to Myers-Briggs to the love languages to the How We Love book. Um, recently just reading through Mike Foster's book, Seven Primal Questions, kind of a new one that we're doing. But always look for tools to help you learn your spouse, not just because it helps you learn them more, but because your spouse is changing. So even what you learned about them five, ten years ago may be different. So continue to learn them. Revisit those questions. Is this still your love language? Are you still, do you still feel like an introvert? You know, are you still identifying with this thing? And continue to be in that posture. Thirdly, laugh intentionally. This one kind of feels like, like a shallow one. It's not. Psychologists say that the number one factor that can determine if a marriage will last is what they call positive reinforced memories. Meaning you have fun together enough that it will take you through the storms of life. Oftentimes, some of the best marriage advice we've been given and that we give is literally like, you just need to be friends. Like, go be friends. Have fun. Lean into that. 
build those memories. Laugh together. Don't make it like, oh my gosh, I, we accidentally are having fun. No, be intentional about building that kind of culture. Fourthly, live missionally. One thing that Paul is saying here is your marriage is bigger than your marriage. Your marriage is pointing to something beyond yourself. Engage in the world. Now, most Christians think that their, their mission in marriage is their kids. But can I tell you something? Your kids will spend more time out of your house than in your house. So that's a really short, that's a short-term missions trip, my friends. You need a longer missional um, call. And you might have your own unique call, but what's your joint call together? How do you engage together in something that's beyond yourself? And then the fifth one, which encompasses all of them, is just love sacrificially, which I would say is the opposite of transactionally. We live in a culture that will tell you love as much as it gives you love back. And I just want to tell you that is a sure way for your marriage to fail. You'll always, because why? Because your bucket's leaking and you don't know it. So if you have two buckets and you're trying to love one another transactionally, before you know it, both buckets are just getting lower and lower and lower. But if you love each other out of Christ's love for you, out of self-sacrifice, out of the gospel, you now have a well that you can draw from that is significantly deeper, not just deeper, but it never runs dry. Eugene Peterson says this, the moment we begin to see others in terms of what they can do, Rather than who they are, we mutilate humanity and violate community. We cannot see our spouse for what they can do for us, even if that's emotional support. We have to see them for who they are. That is who God has called us to, entrusted us to care for and to love. And you know, you might be sitting here and you might be like, cool, theology, methodology, that sounds great. Um, but you might be like, hey, my, my marriage didn't work out. Or my marriage, honestly, is really struggling right now. I don't even know if we can make it through. Some of you guys might be in the wake of your parents' divorce. You're like, I don't even know if I want to get married. Because what happens if things get really tough? What happens if, like, this becomes, like, really, like, it's just too much for me to have? And so I want to just take a few minutes to speak to that in terms of, what happens when marriages experience levels of pain and distrust and, and, and brokenness? What's your way forward? Well, I think in order to answer that, you need to think about what is your marriage facing? There's normally three different realms of what, um, what repair is needing to happen. Number one is broken expectations. And secondly is broken hearts. And thirdly is broken trust. And all three of them require something different in terms of your engagement. Broken expectations happens all the time in the first few years of marriage, isn't it? It's, it's just kind of humorous. You're like, wow, I thought it was going to be like this, and it is not. I thought you were going to act like this. And you enter kids into the things like, oh, I thought you were going to parent like this, and apparently you do not. And that's normally attached to your own upbringing and your family of origin. If you have broken expectations, don't sweep those under the rugs. You need to enter into those with humility and clarity. Again, not not putting dominance or not manipulation, but just saying, like, hey, let's come to some clarity and humility around that. Secondly, though, is sometimes broken expectations happen enough that it actually results in a broken heart. It translates into something bigger. It's like enough little stress fractures, all of a sudden there's a break. Anytime there's a broken heart, and this could be like a, like a big life thing, but it also could happen like weekly, honestly. 
There's times I've broken Jen's heart. I didn't even know I was doing it. But whenever there's a broken heart, the Bible calls us into being people of repentance and forgiveness. We spent a lot of time this year talking about forgiveness. We should be experts at forgiveness. If there's one thing that marks the people of God, it is not our moral perfection. It's our ability to repent and to forgive one another. And that has to happen in a marriage context. So if you're married to someone and all of a sudden they realize you're a human being, like it's a great wake-up call. But be really good at that. If you have kids, Jen and I actively try and repent and forgive one another in front of our kids. If they, if they especially if they see us uh, talk to each other poorly or mistreat each other, we want our kids to see us a model. When we break someone's heart, we repent and we ask for forgiveness and we extend forgiveness to those who hurt. But like I said, there are some times where that broken heart happens enough times or at such a great degree where it's not just a broken heart, there's a broken trust. And largely what I find when I'm counseling with, with couples is people want to apply the same tools to fix a broken heart to broken trust, and it doesn't work. Because broken trust requires something entirely different. You can forgive and repent and say all the right words and even show a degree of right actions, and it doesn't actually help. Why? Because broken trust requires something entirely different, and that means that there needs to be healing, which only comes about through time. And it's, I find it so common when there's broken trust. Whoever broke the trust essentially says this, tell me what I need to do to make it better, and I'm going to run as fast as I can towards that thing, which they think is helping, but really it's dishonoring the healing process. It just takes time. Repairing trust is not something that you can do. And so if you're sitting here and your marriage is, it's beyond broken expectations or even a broken heart, like, man, there's, there's been trust that's been broken. I just want to encourage you, engage that process. Be patient, gracious with one another. One resource, again, because of the scope of time, I don't get to fully dive into this, but one resource I'd recommend is Dr. Henry Cloud just recently came out with a book called Trust. And within it, he kind of reveals different, kind of like a different uh, way to engage the restoration of a trust process. And so he kind of gives six steps that we won't go through all right now, but it's a really profound book that I would encourage you guys to engage. Because here's the reality. Marriage is worth fighting for. Even if there's been broken trust. Now, please hear me. I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about um, just kind of chronic infidelity. I'm not talking about these things that need something entirely different. But if there's, if there's just broken hearts and broken trust and God is inviting you to repair that, there's hope. Let me just tell you two research points. Dr. Paul Amato just came out with a study out of Pennsylvania State University that says this. Recent research shows that marital quality actually improves over the years for couples who don't split up. Specifically, although the marital happiness declined slightly in the early years of marriage, it improved after about 20 years for most long-term married, long-time married couples, while discord improved continuously over time. Shared activities like recreation, eating dinner, or visiting friends together also improved after about 20 years, despite a drop in the early years. The author notes that about half of all marriage lasts a lifetime, and the long-term outlook for most of these marriages upbeat, with happiness and inter in interaction remaining high and discord declining. And secondly, it comes out of Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, 
which I find so compelling. It says, all surveys tell us that the number of married people who say they are very happy in their marriage is high, about 61 to 62%. And there have been little decrease in this figure during the last decade. Most striking of all, longitudinal studies demonstrate that two-thirds of those unhappy marriages out there will become happy within five years if people stay married. What, a, what an encouraging stat. Two-thirds of marriages that are really struggling, if they just choose to stay married, this, like, no other like, like quali- qualification there, will actually become happy just by practicing perseverance. Isaiah 43, 18, just speaks to the heart of God. He says this, and I just, as I was praying for you guys this morning, I just felt like this verse was just been my prayer. It just says this, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you perceive that I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland? The last thing I want to leave you guys with is what we began with is Ephesians 5.32. Paul says, this, talking about marriage, is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. When marriage becomes an idol, meaning an end of itself, something we worship, treat as a functional savior, it will disappoint us. But Paul says this marriage, it is mysterious and it is pointing towards Christ and the church. This is why the apostle John, when he writes the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, his last picture he has of heaven is what? Of a marriage. It's a banquet. It's a feast. And we get to realize that if you're married in this room, your marriage is actually pointing you towards something eternal that will never waste away. If you are unmarried, if you're single or divorced, things like that, marriage is still in your future if you are a follower of Jesus. But it's something more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And I think when marriage is at its best, it is pointing towards Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Drew, if you want to come join me up, up here, we're going to spend some time in worship. As I just want to leave you with one last story. Um, last spring, um, I got to spend a lot of time with my grandma and grandpa as my grandpa was uh, just going under physical deterioration through Alzheimer's and dementia. And, uh, it was a very humbling experience. And we just celebrated a year of him being in heaven. And watching my grandma and grandpa walk through that was something I'll never forget. They were married over 60 years, both kind of small people, my grandpa growing more and more frail. And as his memory declined, the only thing that he could remember was my grandma. His vo- her voice would settle him. Um, she like he would ask for her. He was so confused, but it was something about her that carried him into this place. And the day my grandpa died, we went in to go be with my grandma, and we said, "Grandma, how are you doing?" And she says, oh, she's like, "I'm so sad." She says, "But you know what?" She says, "She says our whole marriage, we were waiting for this moment." I was like, "What do you mean?" She says, "We've been preparing for this our whole life." She says, "I." My job as his wife was to walk with him into to be with Jesus. And, and 
there's something about watching that it was true. It doesn't mean that she didn't grieve and wasn't sorrow, but it was so profound how she chose to love in her marriage, which led to a shadow of an eternal marriage that my grandpa was welcomed into at the, at the banqueting table of the Lamb. So with that picture, would you stand to your feet? I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you have a different way. You have the way of love. I pray for marriages in this room. I pray for healing and restoration, joy, deep friendship. I pray for those who desire to be married, to have a clear and, and under uh, vision, Lord God, of what you intend. And Lord, I pray for every single one of us, Lord God, that our hearts would continue to be bent towards our hope and our longing, which is to be once again reunited with you, celebrating us as your bride and you as our groom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.